Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Volume 607, Literature On and Off Stage, for November 3rd, 2015. Subscribe to Broadway Bullet through iTunes or RSS, and don't miss an episode. In this episode, we've got David Stallings discusses his latest work in Macbeth of the Oppressed, as well as challenges facing all minorities and getting represented on stage. Joe Cosentino discusses his career as an actor, writer, and educator, and talks about his new book, A Murder Mystery, set backstage at a college theater department, Drama Queen. Susan Shulman discusses her career as a Broadway press agent, talks about her book, Backstage Pass to Broadway, and offers advice for theater people dealing with a press agent this week. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Thank you, Sid Gold's Request Room, New York City's original rock and roll piano bar for great cocktails and live piano karaoke with Joe McGinty. Sid Gold's Request Room, located at West 26th Street between 6th and 7th Avenues. Ooh, busy time for me. I'm 10 days away from opening Into the Woods at the University of Great Falls, so that's keeping me busy, but still getting this one out. What I have not gotten is any submissions uh, for songs to air on the show. So again, if you're a composer for theater or cabaret or you friends, you know of one, tell them to submit. I really like to play music from new authors. I thought about putting another one of mine on again, but I really don't want to just hog it. Uh, but maybe tell me if you'd rather one of mine than nothing. Um, anyway, please email your songs to broadwaybulletnyc at gmail.com. All right, well, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we are off with another show, so let's get to the first of three great interviews. Up Close. All right, I'm sitting here with David Stallings, a man who I've had the pleasure to indirectly work with in the past, as well as the interview. I actually composed a song for one of his plays way back when. Yes. And interviewed him for another show, and... We've got him back on Broadway Bullet. He's doing a uh, LGBT version of Macbeth. Yeah, we're calling it Macbeth of the Oppressed. Okay. Yeah. And, and I want to take that kind of discussion into a, a larger issue of gender issues and transgender and LGBT issues in, in the theater scene in New York and abroad. So, Definitely. 
So he, the pressure's on. You're speaking for many. <laughs> <laughs> um, so first off, tell us a little bit about this production of Macbeth. And I will let our listeners know that we are not sitting in a theater. We are not. <laughs> although I love evil spirits, so I say <laughs> Macbeth everywhere. Uh, it came about because uh, the director, Tom Slott, and I have worked together on like five productions, uh, contemporary original work to the classics, and uh, we really hit it off, I think, as director and actor. And we were talking, and I said, I really want to work with you on a classic and uh, a specific role. So let's talk about like four different plays. And uh, you, you know, if something inspires you, let's do it. And he was like, all right. And I was like, we talked about Hamlet, and we talked about I don't know, uh, Othello. And then uh, I said, well, you know, I've always wanted to play Lady Macbeth. And he just stopped dead in his tracks. And he looked at me and he said, okay, so let's uh-huh. do Macbeth. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we took it from there. And um, the Macbeths in this production are a gay couple. And the Macduffs in this production are a lesbian couple. And uh, we're doing it for many reasons. Um, but the thing that drew me is out of, you know, for the many years I've been reading Macbeth and loving this beautiful play, I, the only role I really uh, felt drawn to was Lady Macbeth. I identify with the character. I identify with what she does. And um, I remember auditioning once for a production of Macbeth. The casting director brought me in and uh, I was really excited because, you know, this person knew my work and wanted the director to see me. And I'm doing a monologue and halfway through, they get into an argument and they start talking about how small I am and how I'm not big enough and <laughs> tall enough and broad enough to be any of the characters in the play. And, he, you know, they continued while I continued doing my monologue. It was surreal. And afterwards, the director said, when we do Shaw, I'll call you. And I was like, you know, I, I don't think you need to be a certain size or a certain type to do anything. And if I'm drawn to Lady Macbeth, then one day I'm going to play that part. How tall is Tom Cruise? I don't know. Well, <laughs> he, he's never done stage, I yeah. suppose. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I was just. Antonio drawn Banderas to has. I, and he he's has. Teeny. <laughs> I know. I mean, I've, I've played burly characters yeah. before. It's not, you know, I can butch it up if I have to. But, uh, you know, the other thing that's important is the play itself is misogynistic. It, it just is. It's about a, a woman who says, unsex me here. I wish I was masculine. If I was a man, I could have done the crime. And, and she's telling Macbeth, you're not man enough. Be a man. And the attributes attributed to women are negative, And the attribute, attributes attributed to men are positive. And that's down the line in the play. And Macduff has a speech about manhood, too. And they talk about his good manly virtues. And so to switch it and have a woman talk about her good womanly virtues is something that we're interested in. And uh, to have in this production, husband Macbeth's um, feeling not masculine enough, feeling effeminate or feminine being one of the drives, uh, I think is something that I'm definitely linking into. Yeah. All right. So as we dig deeper in the discussion, uh, there's a lot of issues I want to talk about, and I've been very supportive. I do want to apologize up front, if, especially now that I've been back in Montana for five years. I'm not <laughs> always as PC as, um, as we hope. Montana, we're very cut <laughs> to the bone. So I want to apologize in advance, and please correct me even on air if, sure. if I'm using a well, term Well, I'm from Texas, so I understand. So you maybe understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's easy to fall back into those habits. I get uh, or, or to hear someone yeah. say something, and you have to say, well, actually, let's frame it in a different way so yeah 
LGBT theater and being involved as an LGBT, I mean, you obviously act to it and you know your playwright and stuff. Yep. Mm -hmm. What is the problem with getting pigeonholed? I, I see a right. general overall problem in theater that if, if you're a straight white male, mm -hmm. you can write about, act, and do anything you want. But if you're a minority, damn it, you better be talking, acting, expressing that minority's point of view. Yes. And I think it's a huge problem. Well, you know, that's why I didn't come out for a while. That and, and the fact that I am from Texas. Uh, I just was like, well, I'm living in the Southwest. I am not going to even deal with this. I am going to move to New York after school. And then I'm going to come out like I had a plant. I, I was like, this is for the birds, the way I would be treated and was treated, even closeted. And then um, and then there was the concern of if I come out, will I only be cast as gay characters? Will I not be seen as an actor? I'm a character actor. I can change everything and become anything. I, that's what I love about the craft. So will will I be pigeonholed in that way was something that really came up for me. Um, and the other thing is, too, uh, a lot of gay actors aren't even cast in, in roles written for gay men or women, lesbian. Yeah. Uh, gay and lesbian people, we're often, you know, the supporting characters, especially if we're out, and a lead gay man or lesbian woman is played by a straight actor. And, you know, I'm not saying they can't do that yeah. because I can play straight and they can play gay and we're good actors, but you are limited. You always are. You are, there's unspoken borders uh, that I, I think we should address and break and uh, make it equal for everyone. So, yeah. As a writer, as a playwright too, do you, mm. how often, I mean, and it's all great if that's what you want to write about. Is, sure. You know, queer issues and stuff. But I feel like, said, like, I know I, I just finished my MFA in playwriting. And right. Playwriting especially, I noticed that if it's a black woman and she writes a play that's not about the black female experience, mm -hmm. she faces an endless barrage of questions of why isn't this about the black female experience? Well, I, I tend <laughs> to never... Yeah. Uh, I've written one play. It's actually my most recent play that's about a gay experience um, or it focuses mm -hmm. on a gay couple uh, raising a child and discrimination they face. Um, and that's based on my worst fears. Uh, that was uh, The Baby Monitor, which was recently a finalist for the National New Play Network last year. Um, a great network for people to check it out. It is cool. I was uh, really excited to be a finalist for that. And, uh, uh, you know, didn't make it to the top six, but I've been working on the play. But that play is about my worst fears. And generally, I don't write plays about my worst fears. I, I write <laughs> plays about other things. Uh, and I tend to write plays about big groups of people, society, different cultures. I've written a play about women in the Israeli army. I've written a play about uh, a Latino family in Arizona dealing with discrimination. I write about discrimination, but a lot, but about different groups of people and um, different cultures. And oftentimes when I'm writing this play and I submit it blindly, people will be like, oh, you, you wrote this feminist piece and I thought you were a woman, or oh, I thought you were a Latin person, or oh, I thought you were Jewish. I'm none of those things. I'm, <laughs> I'm a writer and I immerse myself in cultures and I interview hundreds of people and I come up with a story and I tell it. And Do you and, often get that question of why didn't you write about for those other plays? Do you get people that are like, Where's your, where's your gay character? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, for a long time I did. And then I was like, all right, I'm going to write this play about a gay couple, which I never do. And, uh, and it's going to be about my worst fears of discrimination. And, um, and, and that's what that was about. And I'm very proud of that play. 
Um, so, I mean, I tend to write about discrimination and I tend to write about uh, that from all different cultural, that's just my thing as a writer. I'm interested in us as a society dealing with the problems we're not talking about, dealing with the rampant racism in the South and in the Southwest. And um, I've been doing that for years. You brought up one interesting point when you talk about like, you know, how, uh, how misogynistic inherently you know, mm. Macbeth is and, and the play that you're dealing with. And I think one issue that I'm looking at is I think we've got kind of the catch 22 culturally in fixing a lot of things, mm. which is as a culture, obviously we want to study and do the classics. Right. But the classics are often misogynistic, out of touch, out of race and stuff. And yet we keep perpetuating many of these elements how damaging is that versus how positive is that? Well, it's damaging in a lot of ways. Um, for one, we don't have gender parity, okay? That's a, something we're talking about a lot. Now, there's not equality of male and female playwrights. And every time... Or roles or any... We've got or roles. Panel, we're going to get to all of that. Like, uh, beginning with the playwrights. Like, okay, so you're a theater company that does the classics, so you're only doing Shaw, Shakespeare, Ibsen, Strindberg. Like, that's a problem. And that's why when all of this data comes in, it's like they're not only doing mostly contemporary male playwrights, but the classics are all the male playwrights. We actually have some great uh, women who wrote plays 100 years ago, too. We may not know about them. We may, we, may, we should yeah. do research <laughs> and find them. Put some and, of those dramaturgy and degrees. I think work. we need to demand, especially of our regional theaters, that they have gender parity, regardless of their playwrights, regardless of if they're only doing classics or not. They've got to figure it out. You know, throw in throw in some Lillian Hellman. You know, I uh, you know there there are wonderful female playwrights who lived a while ago, so we've got to do that. And then, like our Macbeth, we're doing it a cast of sixteen, eight men, eight women, and we really uh, played with the genders. <laughs> uh, Banquo's a woman, Duncan's a woman, Macduff's a woman. Uh, one of the witches is a man, uh, a man. So it's uh, we're in Lady Macbeth is now husband Macbeth. And, and we really wanted eight and eight. And also, you know what? We're going to make sure it's diverse. We're going to make sure to have different ethnicities in there. Our, our, our porter is a wonderful actress named Sheetal Shaw, and she's a South Asian American actress. And we're ex she gave a killer audition. I've never laughed so hard at the porter as when she did that audition. So uh, you've just got to demand it of yourself, and you've got to demand it of the theater you see. And I think especially my generation and the generations below me, uh, we don't want to go see a play with an all-white cast and mostly men with two women hiding in the castle. I just don't want to see that. And yet, I feel like even Broadway's heading more that direction. Um, and yet not. We yeah. were very lucky with Fun Home this year. I think it's amazing to have the first musical with a, a lesbian protagonist. Yeah. Well, no, I definitely agree. Fun Home was great. And it, yeah. But on the... On the overall, let's look at just overall numbers. Well, and I also want to say those two women who wrote that play, yeah. like a big shout out that, to that them. That was Amazing. awesome that we saw that and the win and everything. Yeah. But like, I know that, um, and I'll probably still go see it, but you know, when uh, uh, my girlfriend had come to New York and visited before me mm -hmm. and, and came home and I was very excited about something rotten and I opened up the playbill and immediately scanned through it. I see two women. Really? I know. 
I know. I haven't <laughs> seen that yet. And I'm sure it's a, a blast and a lot of fun. But we've got to demand it. You know, I it went used to, to be musical theater was the bastion where it was a lot the, of women. It's the female lead. But and what, now even musical theater switched over men, to... Men, 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 male dominated and, and oftentimes even straight male dominated. And, yeah. it, and it's like musical theater. Come on. <laughs> let us in. No, it's, it's about... Oh, what was my thought? I had a thought. It was, it was, I don't know if it was good or not, but it was there. <laughs> no, um, I think we just need to, demand. oh, I went to, um, you know, there's all these summer festivals happening right now and uh, in, in indie theater. And so I went and I saw a ton of plays um, and a lot of them by female playwrights. And I was shocked at how many of them only had one female character and then like, four or five or six men in the play. And I'm like, but you're a woman. You're a, a female playwright. Come on. It's like... But I, I, let me defend them on the same sure. hand, too. Because this is where I say, why are they writing? Is, is, are they writing what's expected or to break through because they're only casting, you know, male persons? Oh, I know. But on the same hand, I don't think... Like, where I said, if you want to write a gay-themed play, fantastic. Do it, but you don't but have you don't, to yeah. do it. I know, and I know, but I think and, that and that's what I do think the industry confuses the whole issue with. We should have female directors so we have more female actors, so we have should have more female playwrights, so we should have, we should have more female playwrights. Yes. But it's not all one issue. No, there are Nor do I think issues. the female playwright uh, you know, should be expected to provide all the female roles. No, not at all. For their season. As men, we need to, and male playwrights need to have parity as well, and, and it needs to be demanded. There, it, and there needs to be uh, different races in your plays. And there needs, we need to just embrace the diversity that is here already in our city and in our country. And, uh, you know, I don't know, I, I, but I was shocked. And it's not just the female playwrights. It was the male playwrights too, but I expected yeah. it of them. I expected to only see one female character. And I, I wasn't happy about expecting it, but it's what yeah. I've grown to expect. But so I was just like, you know, I think we just need to talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. And granted, not every character fits the story. Yeah. But, you know, we've got to keep pushing the boundaries because if we don't talk about it, then it's never going to happen. And, and I know you've always walked that talk, too. I know some mm -hmm. of the, like, I believe we had you on before for Ananine Goes to Hell. Anais Nin Goes yeah, to yeah, Hell. Nin. Yes, and that was a wonderful play about women in history on an island in hell, um, waiting for their men to come save them. And then Anna East shows up and she's like, no, 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 no. We don't need that. And uh, one man and I think six or seven female characters. Yeah. You see, you've walked the talk. And if people are interested <laughs> in finding out, the archives are still up and they can go I check know, out that show. I know, that play, ah, that was fun. It was fun. And, and that was the play that was, people read it and they're like, and one of the reviews even said, I don't know why a, a man wrote a feminist piece of literature. Oh, I wrote it because my mom's a feminist. I was raised by a feminist. So I, 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 her voice is often in my plays. Well, it was a pleasure having you back on the show. Wish you all the luck. Hope some people maybe check out your plays and, yes. and look around, especially if they're looking for some great stuff, for, you know, for more gender parity and, and, and diversity. And diversity, in that's what I'm about. So I, I, I know that there's some stuff in your ouvoir <laughs> that can help meet that requirement. I think so. All right. <laughs> Thank thanks you so much. much. Thank you, Michael. If you are a regular listener, or if you have just discovered Broadway Bullet, I have just set up a Patreon page. Please support our program by pledging a dollar amount for each podcast episode. I'm not going to make anything from these donations. All donations will go to expenses in producing the program and providing flexible, part-time jobs to theater students for helping with the editing, follow-up, and more. Visit patreon.com slash broadwaybullet to contribute, or just click the link on our main webpage. Thanks in advance for your support in creating quality theater podcast programming. Thank you.
Book Drop. I have in the studio with me Joe Cosentino, who was an actor, then a playwright, then an educator, and now an author, as he has just released uh, his book Drama Queen, which is set in a Northeastern drama faculty, Murder Mystery Ensues. And so Joe has stopped by and come in from the Northeast, a little bit north, uh, to visit with us about all those aspects of the career and his new book and series, Drama Queen. How are you doing, Joe? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming down from where are you, where are you coming from again? Poughkeepsie, Poughkeepsie, New York. That's so fun to say. Poughkeepsie. That's what I say <laughs> on the train. Poughkeepsie. <laughs> so um, first off, and then we'll get into some background and some other things, but why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about uh, the Nikki and Noah murder mystery drama queen. Well, they say write what you know about, and that's what I did. I have always loved mysteries. I've read every Agatha Christie mystery and just, I love the idea of the clues and the red herrings and the plot twists and turns and, and the surprise ending. And so I wanted to write a mystery and I thought, write what I know about. So I know about theater since I come from the theater. And I'm also currently a theater professor and department head at SUNY Duchess in Poughkeepsie, Poughkeepsie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I thought, put it all together. And I created a mystery series where the theater college professor solves the mystery by using his theater skills. And as you know, you're one to. We really can barely remember our lines. as actors. <laughs> So what skills do we have? <laughs> well, he's a good listener. We learn how to listen. He's a good eavesdropper. He's a good listener. He's very creative. He knows how to hide in sets and, and listen to people. But also he can portray other people as we do as actors. So he can put on a costume from his costume shop in his college, and he can become a police officer, which is illegal, but who cares? Or he can play various roles and talk to people and try to get information. And so I think a theater college professor is a perfect amateur sleuth because he can use everything we learn as actors to, to solve the crime. All right. So now let's backtrack, backtrack and move a little bit forward through your career as i said started off an actor mm-hmm. so what, what what where did you act what what was it about acting that drew you to it and do you still act at all well i'll start even before that because i think i've always acted for even as a little kid i would force my parents to see my little shows in the garage they were full-blown musicals that <laughs> my sister and i did and so i come from a home that has that loves theater my parents took me to theater My mother used to wash the kitchen floor singing, let me entertain you from Gypsy. (laughs) Remember that? I remember my father putting a a, a sweater around his waist and singing, uh, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair from South Pacific (laughs) while he smoked a cigar. So I've always loved theater. Isn't that a good picture? (laughs) Yeah. Little Italian guy with, with singing that. But the, and they're still alive at 90. So I'm a ho- from a home that loves theater. I've always loved theater and I did theater in school. I majored in theater. And then when I was still in college, I got an agent and I started doing commercials. I did quite a lot of commercials. I was nominated for Clio Award, which is the acting award for commercials. And I also did a TV after school special on ABC called My Mother Was Never a Kid with Holland Taylor. And oh, I like her. She's isn't she great? Yeah. yeah, she's great. And what else? A lot of theater. I did a play called Circus off-Broadway, 
and without reservations off Broadway. And, uh, oh, I did at Motel in the Mountain Dinner Theater. I did Roy the Grace Grease Paint with Nathan Lane before he was famous. Before he was Nathan Lane. Yes. When he was showing up late to rehearsals. and <laughs> He wasn't. No, he was on time. But his name was Joe Lane. And when he went to join Equity, they told me he had to be another name. And he picked Nathan because he did Guys and Dolls. Even back then, he was doing that. And uh, as my mother never lets me forget, she said to me the other day, how come you were in that play I saw you with with Nathan Lane? And he's a big star and you're not. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Yeah, moms are good for that. Again. <laughs> So I did that. Oh, and I did A Midsummer Night's Dream with Bruce Willis, another one who became a big star, and I didn't. And so I did quite a lot of theater, and I was very, I did a lot of print work. I was very busy. I wasn't the actor waiter. I was the actor. Living in New York City at Manhattan Plaza, which is a building for performing artists in New York City, and really leading the the actor's life. And then all of a sudden, I always looked younger than I was because I'm small, Mm -hmm. and I always played younger. And then all of a sudden, when I got into my 30s, the jobs dried up, I guess, because I started to look older. (laughs) And the jobs dried up. And one of the things I had also acted in was children's theater, theater for children. And so the companies that I was working with said, you know, you're so clever. Why don't you write plays for us? And I did. And I wrote adaptations of The Nutcracker and Columbus so many uh what was the uh the um the the show gift of the magi i wrote a lot of them and they toured the companies toured them interborough repertory theater to silly father's productions i did aladdin i did so many did pretty much any fairy tale i i adapted and a legend of sleepy hollow and then and i directed some of them so i started to write and direct plays then i started to write plays not for children's audiences that were done off off Broadway. My favorite one is reach for the sky, which should be on Broadway. If anybody is listening, this should play should be on Broadway. It's hysterically funny comedy, eight characters about a wedding, two families, different families come together for a wedding. And, and madness ensues. Yes, absolute madness <laughs> ensues. Yes. And so then I decided I wanted to be a college professor. Most people don't just make yeah. that decision, having never taught. But I decided I wanted to do that. And so I went back to school, got two masters. One what did you get? Well, I got one from SUNY New Paltz in education and one from Goddard College in MFA, a Master of Fine Arts from Goddard, Goddard College. What was, your, what was your MFA specialty? Playwriting. Okay. Yeah. And so I decided I wanted to be a college professor and I started as an adjunct at SUNY Duchess in Poughkeepsie and clawed my way to the top from adjunct to temporary full-time instructor, instructor, assistant professor, tenured associate professor, full professor. And I've been there almost 20 years and I've been department head 10 years. How long was that scrabble to like feel secure there? Well, I was an adjunct six years, which is a long time. And then I was temporary full-time two years and then tenure track for four years and then tenured. So it was, it was a long haul. But the good thing about it is I know every aspect of that college. Besides the fact that I've been on every committee and got all the endowed chairs and everything, I 
as a department head, can talk to an adjunct. I can talk to a full-time person, administrator, because I've done it all. I know every facet of the college. And I've created three new programs, including the Forming Arts program and Visual Art programs. Because my department that I chair is Visual Arts, Communication Media Arts, and Performing Arts, which is music, speech, and theater. And so I've created 10 new courses, many new programs, and I really feel like I can say to anybody, I've been there, I've done that, I can help you get where you want to get to. And I've been through, I don't know how many academic deans. (laughs) (laughs) Well, clearly too, I I think we all know in the news that um, the state of academics and adjuncts versus you know, full-time professors has really changed over the years. And in fact, you deal a little bit with that in your book, Drama Queen, a little bit into the politics yes. of that. What have you seen? What is What have been the changes as an educator that you've observed over 20 years? Well, the Nikki and Noah Mystery Series takes place, as you said, in a very different college from where I teach. It's in New England. It's a four-year school. It's got gorgeous Edwardian stone buildings and brooks, and it's surrounded by mountains and it's, it's really a cozy mystery in that all the rooms are fireplaces and people sip hot yeah. chocolate. And it's, it's very much like Harvard or, yeah. or Yale. I'm at the other end of that. I'm at a community college, which is, the campus is beautiful, and we are some, surrounded by mountains and the Hudson River, and it is beautiful, but it's a two-year college, and most of our students transfer to four-year universities. And as a matter of fact, we have the highest transfer rate of any community college in New York state and the lowest tuition. And I've directed many of our plays. I think our plays are wonderful and we have a wonderful art gallery and, and why we're different from most four-year colleges and the four-year college in the Nikki and Noah mystery series is that we actually do hire a lot of full-time faculty. And as a matter of fact, we have a new college president who is very committed to that And she feels, as we do, as a department head, I feel, is that the community college is there to really help the students to get them all the skills they need to transfer to a four-year school, say as a theater major or whatever. And it's very hard to do that with adjunct instructors. We have wonderful adjunct instructors. We have 40 in my department. But the 13 full-time faculty, we're in a different position. We're creating curriculum. We're advising students. And you need full-time faculty to be there. We live there. We're there day and night. We don't just teach a class and go home. And so we have been hiring new faculty quite a lot. We just hired a new full-time theater faculty member and two new speech faculty and two visual art faculty. So we're, we're hiring all the time. And we're searching next year for a new music faculty member. So we're... We're different from the four-year schools. We're hiring. But as I said in, yeah. in Drama Queen, that's not the case in the four-year schools. They're very willing to hire new administrators. But when it comes to new faculty, not so willing. So how is this changing the landscape of education in theater? I think it's changing the landscape to say, why not start at a two-year college? The tuition is dirt cheap. The facilities are great. The faculty's great. You can transfer your transcripts going to say the name of your four-year college. So why not start off the two years? You can start on a show your first year, which you usually can't do in the four-year schools. And you will probably have a lot of full-time faculty who are there 
We don't have graduate assistants. I teach all of my classes. My students get me. I've never, I'm going to pat myself in the mm. back. I've never, I've been there 20 years. I've never taken a personal day or a sick day. I've never canceled a class. I'm there. My students get me. I talk to my students. I help them prepare their careers. After they graduate, I keep in touch with them on Facebook and I help advise them on their careers. They're not going to get that at a four-year school. So I think the landscape has changed to say, start at the two-year school and then transfer after that. You'll be ready. You'll have your audition monologues. You'll have your plays you've starred in and then transfer to the four-year schools like the one I've written about in Drama Queen. All right. Well, Joe Cosentino, uh, Drama Queen is out now. You teach at... Uh, Duchess Community College in Poughkeepsie. In Poughkeepsie, yes. Well, thank you so much for taking the train in and coming here to talk with us and all of our listeners. And best of luck with all your upcoming projects. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Breaking the Business. I am joined today by the hardworking Susan Schulman, who does PR, press agent, and has done it for a long time. I worked with her a lot uh, the first five years doing Broadway Bullet. She was always fantastic. A uh, couple things. she has Since I moved and came back to Broadway Bullet, she has released the book Backstage Past Broadway, True Tales from a Theater Press Agent. Yes, indeed. And, uh, and so to talk about the book and all the ins and outs of being a press agent for this uh, high-stakes world. Welcome, Susan Schulman. Thank you, Michael. Isn't this fun? <laughs> Welcome back to New York. Yes, uh, it, it's enjoyable. We missed you. Thank you. And, you know, I, the whole four and a half, five years I did Broadway Bullet, I never got a chance to actually interview a press agent about what they do, and I wanted to. Well, now's your big moment. So um, <laughs> we're, we're going to talk about a few things here. I, I think we'll, first we'll talk about exactly what is a press agent mm-hmm. so people get it. Talk a, little, a bit about your book and some of your stories um, from the book. And then I want to let a little bit of advice for all the different types of people who have to work with a press agent on how they can deal okay. with that. It's kind of how we'll, mm-hmm. we'll move along. So the first nitty gritty, what is a press agent? What is PR? And what's the difference? Ah, Well, first of all, nobody knows what a press agent does. Not producers, not anybody. Most people think it's smiling and nodding, as in, Opening night, when you're handing out press tickets, it's, hi, thanks for coming, enjoy the show. Hi, thanks for coming, enjoy the show. Hi, thanks for coming, enjoy the show. And that is part of it. But really what press agents do in the theater is create the right expectations, both for the audience and for the critics. And that takes a lot of different forms. It might be the way you um, describe a play in a release, It might be the kinds of interviews you set up for the talent in the show, whether it's the creators or the actors. It may be the photos that you choose to represent the the production visually. It may be the kind of video that you help select that's put out to the world online and various and sundry ways that we have now. Um, There's many ways that you shape the expectations for a show. The reason that's important is because if you're expecting apples and you get oranges, it doesn't really matter how fabulous the oranges are. (laughs) Nobody's happy. I just heard about a restaurant in town that closed. Mm -hmm. They were an Italian restaurant named Asian. There you go. Bingo. Wrong expectations. (laughs) That's exactly right. And I'll give you an example. Um, I handled a show called Bob Fosse's Dancing. 
Bob Fosse's Dancing was created by Fosse, by the wonderful Bob Fosse, to, as he said, put a lot of wonderful dance numbers that he created up on the stage before he was too old. That's how he <laughs> couched it. And there was never a thread or a storyline. It was not a book musical. It was really um, like a review of Bob Fosse. And these were all new numbers. These weren't, this wasn't like a retrospective, which, you know, people have done, but this was Bob Fosse's dancing. And Fosse always create, always took his shows to Boston before New York because he loved the Boston audiences and he also valued the Boston critics. And he would really listen to what they had to say and he involved them in the creative creative process of his shows. He would They would come to review the show at the beginning of a run as, as normal. But then he would invite them back maybe midway through the run and see what they thought about the changes that he had implemented because he was always fixing and changing and enhancing his shows. They were never set, um, particularly in Boston. And so he really valued their input. There were two, two main critics and at the time, and he really listened to them, and he wanted to know. He didn't always do what they said, but he wanted to know what they thought. So they were really part of the creative process, which is very unusual for a director. But anyway, in Boston, even though we thought we had represented the show appropriately and we said that there was no th theme or story, up until then, Fosse had only done book musicals. He'd done Sweet Charity and shows that had a book. And so here comes Danson with no book, and the critics didn't like it. And they said, there's no theme, there's no thread, there's no storyline, and they didn't like it. Well, there wasn't supposed to be. But somehow we had not, we had failed to create the right expectation for dancing. And so before it opened in New York, and it was about 95% the same show that had opened in Boston and gotten lousy reviews, Fosse did a Sunday Times pre-opening interview. And that's, of course, read not just by theater goers, but it's also read by critics. And we sat down with him beforehand and we said, you must talk about how there's no story. There's no book. This is a review of your dances. And he did. And the show opened and it got raves. 95% the same show. Because this time the critics' expectations were met. It was very yeah. interesting. I was thinking, yeah, it's, it's, it is an expectations. Is an mm -hmm. Very important thing. And people have very little... Um, knowledge of how much creative input a press agent can have in a show. Not always. It depends on the director or the producer and how open they are to welcoming other people into the process. But how I, often are you going to rehearsals, et cetera? Oh, all the time. All the unless unless in some cases <coughs> the the director there bars everybody. I worked on a show called The Merchant, which sadly was the show that Zero Mostel died during. Not a not a good thing. And uh, the director was someone named John Dexter. He was a very famous English director. And his attitude was nobody was welcome in rehearsals. So the producers were not, the producers were the Schuberts. Uh, the producers were not allowed, the designers were not allowed, the press agents, none of us were permitted to, to attend rehearsals, which is a very hard way to um, represent a show. And so I was kind of skulking around the, uh, the hallways outside the rehearsal halls, waiting to catch actors to approve bios and to set interviews and things. It was not an easy way to operate. But, <laughs> but it's very helpful to be in, re in rehearsals because you get a real sense of how the director perceives the show and how it's developing. And you, you get ideas for hooks. You get to meet the actors in a way that um, you learn more about what might be of interest about them to the media. So it's very helpful to be involved with rehearsals. 
Right, so moving on a little bit to your book, Backstage uh-huh. Pass to Broadway. Yes. I, I hear there's a story about this cover. Yes, my cover, <laughs> my cover, which is a hand pulling back a beautiful lush red curtain uh, to, to expose the title of my book. Which was, is? Which is Backstage Pass to Broadway, <laughs> said the press agent. Um, and the cover, the design of my cover was created by a gentleman named Frank Verlizzo. You, if you're a theater lover around the country, you might know his nom de plume or his nom de art, which is Fravor, F-R-A-V-E-R. And Fravor has created the artwork for most of the most famous posters ever on Broadway. For instance, let's start with The Lion King and Sunday in the Park with George. George, those were all created by Fravor. George is okay. George, yes, <laughs> we're very close, George. George is the southern version of Sunday in the Park. And um, and Frank Verlizzo very generously created the art for my cover, which was pretty cool. You know, it sounds like I'd love to talk to this guy on the show. Maybe I would love you. Maybe... You'd love Frank. He's wonderful. <laughs> He's a funny, bright, smart guy who's been doing it for about 40 years and used to be um, part of one of the top, uh, advertising agencies. He was the art director for one of the uh, Broadway's top agencies and then uh, went out on his own. And so, Fravor NYC. So, while we all know you can't judge a book by its cover, mm-hmm. you're into setting up I expectations. Love, you're up to I, setting up expectations. I, I kept saying to Frank, I, I, I'm concerned so, that the cover is going to be better than the book. But how, <laughs> so, so, how as a press agent do you feel the cover sets up expectations well, and you know, meets them? For somebody the novel? said a, a good cover is, is you know, 50% of the battle. 50, 50, 50% of the battle, yeah. because after all, you go into a bookstore and you see a million books, and what catches your eye? Even even on Amazon, I think. Absolutely. I, I, you know, a good cover in those little blips. Well, you they, have, if, interestingly, now when you when you create a book, design a book, and, and publish a book, you, you have to think about what your artwork will look like one inch by one inch, which is how it is represented on Amazon. So it's mm-hmm. an interesting thing because normally you look at a cover and you think of, you think, well, if this was on a row of books mm-hmm. in a bookstore, would, would my eye go to that? But now you have to think of it in a teeny little format. I think especially for niche books like yes, this, Amazon yes. is me, you know, mm-hmm. small towns would not stock mm-hmm. this in, you know, my, well, in my day. In- but interestingly, um, when my fir- when my book first came out, it was uh, named one of Amazon's top 100 theater books, but they, as I said, but, uh, which yeah. was pretty cool considering at one point my book, which is uh, which which does I have to say as a press agent, I'm a little bit you know I wonder about that, but at one point my book was listed ahead of Act One which I find the most bizarre thing I've ever seen in my life because we all grew up on act one, um, um, you know, the famous act one. Uh, and the fact that my book could even be listed in the same sentence as act one to me is uh, uh, amazing and shocking and a little bit bizarre. But um, needless to say, I, I have not outsold act <laughs> one. I feel sure, but it, for that Brief shining moment. We'll, we'll give it another there. couple decades. Yeah, so. let's let's wait a bit. I think Moss Hart <laughs> may have a couple of years on me. Yeah. <laughs> so so what what is the book about, and what, what's some of the stuff in it that that? Well, what for, did you want to share with us? For what years and years, I would tell my friends crazy things that had happened to me as a press agent, some bizarre thing that would happen during rehearsal or something, whatever, with with reasonably famous or very famous people, and they would always say to me, "I hope you're writing this stuff down." And the fact was, I didn't. I never did. <laughs> and but people were always very amused by these stories, and and some of them were sto- stories of stars doing be, being wonderful and just terrific, and some of them were stars behaving badly. 
And of course, everyone wants to know the gossip and everyone wants to know the dirt. And I was somewhat reluctant to share those stories publicly because you don't want to hurt people and you don't want to um, damage your own career along the way. Um, and so at some point, somebody said to me, I think it's time to, to start writing these down. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll write them down and we'll see what happens. And I did write them down. And to my amazement, somebody wanted to publish them. And suddenly I thought, hmm, maybe I better rethink this because I don't want to, um, I, my goal is to not trash anyone and not to, you know, hurt anyone. Um, and so it was a very interesting and careful uh, route that I mm -hmm. chose to take. And one of the things that I did was I let the audience, the reader, decide what they think. I don't tell people what I thought. Okay. So I will tell a story and I will tell what happened, but I won't say, well, you know, wasn't he an idiot? <laughs> I'll let the reader decide what they think of that. And the other thing that I did very consciously of not being sued <laughs> was to tell stories that happened, 99% of them are stories that happened in public. And so if a star picked up a chair and threw it at the, at the producer and did it in front of 20 people, fair game. Um, if it was a conversation that happened just between us in a private room where something bad happened, I don't share that. So it was a very it was a very carefully thought through. Is that just a legal concern, or is that also like, you think just like kind of a moral? Well, it's thing? both. Is it, is it's it a both. different? Is it a different expectation we have of an artist or a person when it's one on one in private versus in public? Exactly. You know? Yes, absolutely. And and I think things that are private should stay private. And I think that things that are done publicly in front of many people or you know are fair game. And and it and again, as I say, ninety nine percent of my book is telling stories about really happy, joyful things that happened and experiences. This is not a history of the theater for the last 40 years. This is my experiences. This is a memoir. And so it's, people would say to me, well, what about so-and-so? Well, I, maybe I didn't work with so-and-so. You know, what, what, what about, mm. uh, you know, what about this show? I didn't, if I didn't work on it, then that's not in my book. I'm, I'm talking about the people I did work with who are pretty darn good. I mean, you know, we're talking Mary Martin and, and Yul Brenner and Zero Mostel and Lauren Bacall and- uh, How long? Hmm? You look like you're 20 years old. Isn't it so amazing? How, so it's how long have you been a press agent Well, here? my first big show was Applause, which opened in 1970. Now I was a, a wee child. I really was a wee child. And the, do you want to hear how I wound up handling applause? Sure. Because this is really, it was, it was actually. Is this a taste of what the book's like? Too? Absolutely, yes. Well, here's what happened. I was working for, I had worked for a couple of press agents, and I sort of was beginning to get my feet wet in the theater. Um, I was a theater kid. I grew up in New York. I went to shows starting when I was five with my parents and hung around stage doors. And I didn't want autographs. I wanted to tell people they had enhanced my life. And that really worked wonders because sometimes they'd invite me backstage and but I was a theater kid. I was I was the man in the chair, you know, from Drowsy Chaperone. I was the one that sat and listened to all the original cast albums in their bedroom. Anyway, so in 1969, I was pretty much just out of college, and I was working for a big Broadway press agent named Bill Dahl. And Bill Dahl had, this was sort of the tail end of his grand years. He had been Mike Todd's press agent, and he'd, he'd been one of the grand old men of the theater. And this was sort of the tail end of his career. And I was the kid in the office. I was 
like 22 or something. And we, among the shows that we were working on was Applause, starring Lauren Bacall. It was written by Comden and Green and Adamson Strauss, directed by Ron Field. It was going to be a big new musical that was created to showcase Lauren Bacall. And it was based on All About Eve, which was, uh, and Betty Davis, who had starred in the, in the movie, was Lauren Bacall's idol. There were just a million things about it that were special. And I was the kid in the office, you know, that answered the phone and did all the crap stuff. And I was one of many press agents assigned to work on applause. And Betty was a very tough cookie. On one hand, she was very vulnerable and very nervous. She knew this was a big moment in her life. This was a big deal, starring in her first Broadway musical. On the other hand, she was very defensive and she was tough and she'd had a hard time. She, her husband had died, a, a Bogart had died and she had two young kids. She'd moved back to New York. Hollywood had turned its back on her and so she decided to come back to New York and reinvent herself on Broadway. And starring in a big Broadway musical was a very big deal for her. And so she was very nervous. And what happened was everybody was afraid of her, including me. I, I mean, she was tough. And, but I also saw the vulnerability. I could see that she was scared too. But anyway, she would, she would ask one of the other press agents in the Bill Dahl office if something was done. And because they didn't want to incur her wrath, they would say yes. And then she would find out it wasn't done and she'd kill them. That's what would happen. <laughs> so there I was, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, young, young thing wanting to do good. And she would ask me if something was done. And I would say, I don't know, I'll find out. And if it's not done, I'll take care of it. Now, I wasn't being manipulative. I wasn't trying to be Eve Harrington. I was just trying to do my job. I, I wouldn't have known how to be manipulative. I could barely get my clothes on right side out. You know, I mean, I was a little kid. So I was just doing my job. And one day I was called into the producer's office and they said, uh, Miss Bacall has informed us that the only person she will talk to in the Bill Dahl office is Susan Shulman. And so at the ripe old age of whatever I was, 22, I wound up Five. handling. Five. I was a very, very, <laughs> very young girl. I wound up handling what became the biggest hit show on Broadway. And it was because of Betty Bacall, who liked me and trusted me and I felt I was a straight shooter, and I was. And it was an extraordinary thing. It shouldn't have happened. I mean, if it, you know, anybody who, they were nuts, frankly, because I, what did I know, you know? But I did rise to the occasion, and I did a good job, and everybody liked me, and I worked very hard. And But it was because of Betty Bacall. Right. Well, thanks, Susan Shulman, for stopping by. Can I say by. one more thing? Yes. Uh, right now, the best way to buy Backstage Pass to Broadway is through my website, which is, as I said, very cleverly titled www.backstagepasstobroadway.com. Um, rather than buying it on Amazon, it is available if you're in New York at the Drama Bookshop and at Theater Circle. In um, Washington Depot, it's at the Hickory Stick uh, Bookshop. It's in some small bookshops around the country, but primarily available through my website right now. So I hope you'll listen. Yes. All right. Read. Yeah, I was going to give you a plug. Oh, thank things. you. Thank <laughs> well, I am good. a press agent. Me. Yes. <laughs> thank you so much for stopping by, Susan Shulman, and best of luck. And, and I look forward to continuing to work with you and my trips back here. Thank you. Welcome back. Thanks. Curtain Call. Well, that about wraps up this week's episode. Again, I'd love to play some more music on this thing, so please uh, tell your friends or if you're a composer, send me your tracks. BroadwayBulletNYC at gmail.com. 
And uh, we've got two more episodes left in the first half of our season. Uh, so the next episode will be on November 16th. And I will have just opened Into the Woods. <laughs> I'll be exhausted for sure. And uh, then the final episode will be the first Tuesday in December. And then I'm off to New York City to get more interviews for the next half of the season. It is looking promising that I uh, will be able to cover Hamilton. So uh, hopefully uh, that occurs because I know a lot of people are looking to hear a lot about that show. With that said, uh, do remember that if any of these interviews caught your attention, we do have the full unedited interview also within the feed. Um, and if for some reason you don't want to get all the full interviews, you can just uh, select your RSS or iTunes feed to only download most recent episode. Because I put up all four at once and the this episode is always the most current one. So uh, that helps if you're looking to how you want to subscribe. With that said, um, I'm Michael Gilbo. I am your host and producer and uh, still a little bit under the weather too. You might hear in my voice. Um, we want to give a special thanks again to our location sponsor, Sid Gold's Request Room. Check them out when you're in New York City. They're a really fun piano bar, uh, not a typical piano bar at all. And also special thanks to uh, my assistant and associate producer for this half of the season, Caroline Reyes. about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that, to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And, if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.